So tonight, we're going to talk about relating to our parents, honoring our parents. And there's actually a few scriptures that I want us to look at. So I gave you um, two different things. One's the outline. The other has scripture on one side. And on the back, it has some excerpts from a great book by a guy named uh, Dr. Dan Allender, a book called How Children Raise Parents, um, which is actually a great book on parenting. Uh, I'll make mention of that quote in a little bit when we get to it. But we're going to start with the side that has the scripture passages, because the Bible talks about the way that you relate to your parents and the way parents should relate to their children quite a lot. And uh, I think it's actually important that we make sense of what all the Bible has to say about different topics, right? I do think that's one of the things that if you have a high view of the Bible, you can't pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, people have a view of the Bible that makes it easy and convenient for them to dismiss things that they don't like, um, whether they're ultra-conservative or ultra-liberal. And, and, and I think that one of the hard things is saying, no, if this is God-breathed scripture, which is what it says and it's what we believe here at RUF, then we've got to make sense of all of it. And when we think about ethics and how we relate, how we live the Christian life, we have to use all of it and try and make sense of it together, right? So there are actually several important biblical principles that kind of converge when we're talking about how we relate to our parents. So I'm going to read some passages from some different places and then kind of try and pull all that together. Ready? That's what we're going to do today. All right. So the first is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This, you will probably know, this is from the Ten Commandments. I won't read the whole thing, but I will read um, the first few verses here so that you can kind of see where honoring your mother and father fits in with worshiping God, honoring your mother and father. That's one of the themes tonight. Worship God, honor your mother and father. Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So there you see, worship God, honor your father and mother. Matthew 10, these are the words of Jesus, starting at verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. A lot of people don't think that Jesus would say something like that. He came not to bring peace, but to, be a, to bring a sword. But it ties in, do you see, with 
worship God, Jesus being God incarnate, honor your mother and father. Those priorities are important. Matthew, or sorry, Mark 10, verse 29. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Ephesians 5.21, which actually is the control verse for all the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to come back to that chapter when we talk about marriage, um, which will be after spring break. It will actually be for Convo that night, so be watching for that. Um, But, you know, a lot of times when I do weddings, people want to read Ephesians chapter 5, and they often want to start where most Bible translations have like a little subheading that says, wives, submit to your husbands. And I'll tell you, if I ever do your wedding, you ask me to read that passage, I will refuse unless we do verse 21 as well, because the section really starts with verse 21. Before the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's the overarching principle. And then it talks about husbands and wives, and then it talks about children and parents. And here's what it says down in chapter 6, verse 1. But this is still under that heading of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, or as the old King James says, the fear and admonition of the Lord. And then finally this, Ephesians 3, verse 14. This is an interesting passage because what Paul is saying here is the whole idea of fatherhood is something that derives first from God, who is our true father. And earthly fathers either reflect that well or poorly, but the idea of fatherhood is not something that we experience and then project on God, kind of like a Freudian, totemistic kind of thing, but it actually starts the other way. God created us in his image as his children. He's our father, and that's what Paul is getting at here. Chapter 3, verse 14, Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, there's a wordplay in the Greek there where it's basically pater is is father and paternos, family. So it's that same root word. So even the idea of being a family of God is connected to God as the father. That's the archetype, if you will, of what it means to have a true family. Okay, so there we got some passages Let me open us in prayer, and then we will kind of try to put some of this together, okay? God, we do thank you that you are our Father, our true Father. And we pray that you'd help us to understand not why that's important, but to relish in that, to enjoy that. But Lord, we also know that many come here, really all of us come here with some kind of baggage regarding this whole issue. And so we pray that you'd open our hearts to behold wondrous things in your law and learn new things about your love. 
and grace. And in this we ask, in Jesus' name, please send your spirit to help us. Amen. So, a few big picture concepts to kind of set the stage, and then we're going to talk about what does it mean to honor our parents and some practical applications. So that's kind of our our little way we're going to get at this tonight. So the first is the Ten Commandments. Always remember this. The context of the Ten Commandments is what we call the prologue, which says, I am the Lord God who brought you out of slavery. You know, I, I don't know if people still do this, but I remember when Judge Moore down in Alabama was making a big deal about having the Ten Commandments on his courtroom wall, I would drive around Nashville sometimes and I would see signs in people's front yards of the Ten Commandments. But I never saw a sign of the Ten Commandments, nor did Judge Moore want to put the Ten Commandments with the prologue. If you don't include the prologue, you radically distort the law of God and thus distort God himself. The Ten Commandments are not ten new laws Ten new ways for God to put his people back into bondage. The Ten Commandments are, I am the Lord who brought you out of bondage, therefore here's how you will stay free. Here's how you will stay free. And that's why when it says, honor your mother and father, that it may go well for you in the land. Do you see what he's saying here? Uh, The way Tim Keller put it is, God's laws, God's laws, when you break God's laws, they break you. Because Isaiah, um, I think it's chapter 54, says that our maker is our husband. It's a really important verse to understand the nature of God and thus understand what Christianity is all about. The one who made you is the one who loves you more than anyone. Put those, keep those two things together always. And, and that helps us to know that the Ten Commandments aren't God just picking some arbitrary rules. The Ten Commandments are God saying, this is what I made you for, and I'm the one who loves you. I'm not just picking random things to tell you, here's what you should do. This is what you were made for. Freedom is found in living the way I made you. Maybe, maybe you've heard this like little preacher story of, you know, if you were out, you know, uh, out in Bellevue, you can go fishing pretty easily out on the Harpeth River. And imagine you're out there in a canoe and you're, you're kind of got your, your pole and you've you're got your, your line in the water. And all of a sudden a fish jumps up out of the water, up on the bank and starts screaming, I'm free, I'm free. That fish is not free. That fish is about to be dead. Right? When you break God's laws, you don't get freedom, it actually hurts you. Because your maker is your husband, and he's gracious to tell us what he made us for. If you don't worship God, it will break your life. It's not just kind of a random, well, you could do this or you could do this. What God is saying and what Christianity proclaims without shame is that if you don't worship God, it will break your life. If you don't honor your mother and father, it will break your life. And we're going to talk about that. It doesn't mean worship your mother and father. To honor them means to give them due weight, but not the worship that belongs to God himself. But it also means not to ignore them. There's lots of ways to fail to honor, okay? So that's the first thing, the big picture. And, and what you see here is the way the Ten Commandments start with the first 
few commandments talking about worshiping God and then honor your mother and father, what God is doing is talking about how authority is supposed to work. The the fifth commandment isn't just about your mother and father, it's actually about all the authority structures that God has set up. And the reason we know this is because the Ten Commandments um, operate on this principle that we call synecdoche. Maybe some English majors know what that means. Anybody know what synecdoche? Right. It means the part for the whole. The part for the whole. In other words, when Jesus says that if you have anger against your brother, you have broken the commandment, which says do not murder, that if you have lust after a person, you have broken the commandment, do not commit adultery, is he adding to the law at that point? He's not. He's saying this was always what the law was about. The Ten Commandments talk about different issues by giving us the most extreme or the most grievous example. But under that is all illegitimate use of sexuality. Under that is all hatred, murder, devaluing the image of God in mankind, right? So that's why Jesus says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all the commandments. The commandments aren't extra. They're all ways of living out, loving God, loving your neighbor. And the Ten Commandments are like a tenfold summary of that. But then as you go through all the rest of the Old Testament, uh, what we call the moral law, it's basically fleshing out what that means. They're not new laws. There, of course, are ceremonial, sacrificial, and civil laws. That's a whole other thing. But they're all connected to this moral law. All right? So authority structures. That's why, for instance, there's an old um, catechism, which is basically the way people used to teach um, Christians and children how to think about God and how to understand the Bible and Christian faith. They would put up these things they call catechisms. They would write them. They would have a question and then an answer, and you would have to learn those, and then people would quiz you. And you wouldn't just have to spit back out the answer. You'd also be quizzed on, do you really understand the heart of this? But the Heidelberg Catechism... It's actually a really excellent catechism. It was written in the 1500s in Heidelberg, Germany. And the question on the fifth commandment, what does God require in the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father, says this, that I show honor, love, and fidelity to my father and mother and to all in authority over me, submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and correction, and also bear patiently with their weaknesses and shortcomings, since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. In in Romans 13, for instance, when Paul says that we are to obey the state, he doesn't just come up with that out of the blue. It's part of what's contained in the fifth commandment. Where you first are to learn due honor to authorities that God has set before you is through your mother and father. Of course, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes that gets distorted. But in the way God made it to be, that should be the first place where you learn how to honor and how to obey God and how to kind of see that, okay? So closely connected to that is this important principle. God is the ultimate authority. 
and we submit to him in submitting to the lesser authorities he has set up. Remember that? Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another. Why? Or how? Out of reverence for Christ. We don't give reverence or worship to anyone except God. Christ being God incarnate. And because of that worship, God calls us as part of living that out to honor our mothers and fathers. Now, I know a lot of Christians have been taught a really messed up view of authority that looks like this. God is the ultimate authority, and then your parents, and then your parents rule you. But that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says God is over your parents, and God is over you. It's not a direct line, God, parents, and you. It's God is over you, and therefore you are to honor and obey your parents. But notice this, your parents have to answer to God. They don't have freedom to do whatever they want. And this right understanding of authority means that because your ultimate obedience and reverence is to Christ, you can and sometimes must critique unjust authority because your ultimate allegiance is to God. And then you see this lived out actually in Acts chapter 5, where the civil authorities tell to the apostles, you cannot tell people about Jesus. And do you know what they say to the authorities? We must obey God rather than men. There are times when to reverence God means to disobey civil authorities, parental authorities because they are not ultimately in authority over you. They are in authority to you, but you reverence Christ. He's the higher authority. And if push comes to shove, and your parents tell you to do something that God says you cannot do, then you must obey God rather than men. Now, most of the time, that's not what you get into. Most of the time, you might have something where you have freedom to do it, but your parents say, eh, I don't think it's a good idea, or no, you can't. That's different. But there are times when parents and civil authorities might tell you to do something that God says you cannot do, or tell you you can't do something that God says not just you can do, but you must do. And that's why it's so important to understand this right understanding of how biblical authority works. Okay? So, ultimately, parents are called to reflect the character of God to their children. Dan Allender says that what that basically means is that parents are to give their children a taste of the strength and mercy of God. Now, where do we come up with that? Well, in John chapter 1, John's Gospel chapter 1, John says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace. What is it? Full of um, strength and mercy. And that, that, so that's a wonderful description of Jesus. He's full of strength and mercy. And we are, in all of our relationships, to reflect the character of God. It's hard to reflect both of those things. People tend to, by temperament, want to do one or the other. But it's so important that we reflect both. And that brings me to this little excerpt that I gave you. I don't have time to read all this, but let me explain what this is. Dan Allender, who's a great Christian psychologist, highly recommend really all of his books and his podcast as well, 
Um, he says that all children are basically asking two questions in life. And these are the two questions. Am I loved? And can I get my own way? And if parents don't answer those questions well and consistently, it leads to problems. What is the right answer to those two questions? Well, I'll tell you. The first answer, am I loved, should always be yes. And the second answer to the question, can I get my own way, should be no. Now, what happens if your parents regularly answer, yes, you can get your way, and no, you are not loved? Well, that's the first category. He calls this the dangerous and demeaning response. P children, the parents who answer, yes, you can get your own way, and no, you're not loved, raise children who learn that their parents don't care what they do and that their parents do not enjoy them. Theirs is a soulless and inhumane home. Children in this home lack a conscience and have no concern for others. They must learn to find both love and rules elsewhere. Go on, the next one, the indulgent and distant response. This is parents that answer, yes, you can get your own way, and yes, you are loved. Their children lack strength, and they grow up knowing, knowing only a counterfeit tenderness. These parents are often well-to-do, highly educated people who care more about public image and appearances in the hearts of their children. The children often are poised and competent, but they lack the strength of conviction and character that develops through bumping up against consistent boundaries. You can tell he's counseled a lot of people and dealt with a lot of people who've experienced the wrong answers to these questions, right? But isn't it good to know that there are actually some things that the Bible says about how parents are to relate to their children? Parents should give children a sense of the way the real world works and the way God is. The rule-bound, dull response, parents who answer, no, you can't get in your own way, and no, you're not loved. Then there's the response of strength and delight. The fourth option is the only correct answer to every child's two core questions. Yes, you are loved beyond belief, and no, you cannot get your own way. These two answers provide children with strength that watches out for their welfare and with the delight of being loved without conditions. Sadly, this combination is the least common among the answers today's children are receiving. Too many parents shun the discomfort and inconvenience that come with answering no to the question, can I get my own way? Meanwhile, the unwillingness to embrace joy keeps many parents from answering the other question, am I loved, with a resounding yes. That's strong. He goes on and says this, the questions are invitations as well particularly to parents. As our children ask the core questions, they're wondering about two additional matters. What is wrong with my family, and how can I fix things? All children unknowingly try to fix their mother and father and change the fabric of family life. And if we, he's talking to parents here, are really listening, we'd hear the child's unspoken words as they attempt to provoke change. Our children invite us to grow to become fully human, this invitation comes by way of unvoiced questions. Will you cry with me? Will you hold me? Will you be strong enough to face your own failure and grow as my parents? But if we, and he's talking to parents, learn to listen to our children, we will find a precious truth. What they deeply crave is the same core desire we find in our own hearts. As we listen, we will learn to ask the same questions 
Am I loved? Can I get my own way? To the God who has made us and called us to be parents. And we will learn to listen to his answer to us. Yes, you are loved more than you could ever fathom. And no, you can't have your own way. But as you pursue my way, you will find the deepest satisfaction your heart can ever know. See, it's not just parents need to answer these questions well for their children. They need to answer these questions well with regard to God. And God, who is the perfect parent, is always in the business of answering these questions rightly. Yes, you are loved. No, you can't have your own way. And God loves us too much. God loves us too much to back down from either of those things, no matter how we may complain. And we do complain sometimes, right? See, here's the thing. The good news tonight is that even if your earthly parents have not answered those questions well, and none of us, none of your parents have answered these questions perfectly, your heavenly Father is committed to answering them well, even if you don't like it. In the gospel, we have the amazing news that we have been loved more than we ever dreamed possible, that Jesus, the only Son, whoever knew what it was like to be loved by a perfect Father, gave it up and took the wrath of that Father upon his head to reconcile us to God. Are you loved? (laughs) Are you kidding? Are you loved? The only one who knew the perfect love of a perfect father gave it up for you. Are you loved? Of course. Can you get what you want? Can you do whatever you want? No, because what parent that loves their children lets them do whatever they want? And God is committed, God is committed to loving us and not letting us get our own way even if that makes us upset. And it does at times, right? All right. So what does it mean to honor our parents? A couple thoughts. Pastor I used to work for, Scotty Smith, he had some great stuff on this. And so you might see some quotes from him as we go through this next section. First thing to notice is that we're to honor both our parents. Now that may not strike you as unusual, but I will tell you in the Old Testament cultural context, that's actually kind of a radical thing. For the mother to be honored is a radical departure from the culture of the Bible times. And I always like to point that out because sometimes people think that the Bible is always demeaning to women. And usually when you actually understand the culture of the day, you'll see that it's radically affirming of the importance of women. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3, which is basically a um, a rehashing of the Ten Commandments, there, mother is put first. Honor your mother and father right? Husbands, wives, parents, children, master, servants are all to submit to one another in the Lord. What does it mean to honor our parents? I mentioned this earlier, but let me get into this with a little more detail now. It means to honor someone means to treat them as weighty. That word honor in in the Hebrew means to consider as weighty. To to dishonor somebody is to, to basically regard them as having no weight, they're just like chaff that can just kind of blow off in the wind, right? So, so what does that mean? Well, Scotty Smith, pastor I used to work for, had a couple 
kind of ways of explicating that that I thought were helpful. He said the first is to accept God's sovereignty over the parents he has given us. And that is not an easy thing for everyone in this room. Some of you know that. Some of you need to know that to love your friends well. Uh, College is often the time when people get out of their family system and realize, whoa, like what I thought was normal wasn't actually very good. Sometimes it's a time where you're like, you really come to come fresh appreciation for your parents. Maybe you're like, oh, they never do anything right. And then you get to hear other people's stories. You're like, okay, whoa, you know, boy, I'm more grateful than ever for my parents, right? But accepting God's sovereignty over the parents he's given us is the first thing of what it means to treat them as weighty. The second is to treat them with respect, listen to their instruction, and bear patiently with their weakness because they are finite and sinful just like us. And I think that's, that finite piece is important. What does that mean? That means that they're not perfect, and it's not always just about sin. Sometimes parents fail us because they're just finite human beings, and we want them to be God. To, to honor them, to treat them as weighty, means to remember that while they are important, And while God has put them in our lives in this place of weight, he has not called them to be a God substitute. And it doesn't honor them to expect that from them. Honoring our parents does not mean worshiping them. And you saw that in Matthew 10, that that kind of weird passage where Jesus says, I've come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. What he's saying is, if it comes down to it, if it comes down to allegiance to your parents versus allegiance to God, make no mistake about it. There is a right answer to that question. And it may mean turning away from your parents. The kingdom may call you to disobey your parents. That's not a light thing, but it has to be something that you consider as you consider what does it mean to worship God. Honoring our parents does not mean worshiping them. How do we worship our parents? Well, we worship a parent when we give them the love and submission that belongs to God alone. This is the way John Calvin said it. John Calvin has some remarkable uh, stuff on this. I know people like, oh, he's a horrible person. Most people that think that have never actually read John Calvin. They've just heard about him. Listen to this. For parents sit in that place which they have been brought by the Lord, who shares with them a part of his honor. Therefore, the submission paid to them, to parents, ought to be a step toward honoring that highest father. In other words, if it went well, ideally, honoring your parents is teaching you about how to honor God. Hence, if they spur us to transgress the law... We have a perfect right to regard them not as parents, but as strangers who are trying to lead us away from obedience to the true father. It is unworthy and absurd for their eminence, meaning the parents' eminence, so to prevail as to pull down the loftiness of God. On the contrary, their eminence, our parents, depends upon God's loftiness and ought to lead us to it. So this is a guy that wrote a lot about the sovereignty of God. But he is not somebody who's saying, 
Obey your parents at all costs. Do you understand? Furthermore, to drive their children like slaves or to abuse their children sexually or otherwise, or even to fail to protect them, is to forfeit the right to be called parents. There can be such grievous breaks of the parental responsibilities that they lose their right to be regarded as parents. I hope you hear that. Paul commands fathers in Ephesians 6 to behave in a certain way towards their children to not exasperate them. And he does the same thing. He says the same thing to masters. In other words, those who are in authority are not free to rule however they like. And that's not a new idea, right? When Adam and Eve were put in the garden, they were not given carte blanche to do whatever they wanted with the creation. They were to rule as God's stewards within the confines of what God said in his law. That's why when God says, do not eat of this tree, they couldn't say, well, you put us here to do what we wanted with the creation. That's why not caring for the creation is not something that human beings have a right to do, right? I know not all Christians have understood that or practiced that, but it's true. Those in authority are not to, to rule however they like. They are to model being under authority themselves in the way they lead. And you see that in Ephesians 5 and 6. We'll talk about it when we get to marriage. Because Paul says, husbands love your wives, ask Christ love the church, which means sacrificially. Because Christ loved the church by dying for her. So authority is really burden-bearing. And it would help you in your relationships with your parents to remember that. That authority is not, oh good, I get to be in charge. In the Bible, authority is, oh, I need to take on the weight of burden bearing. That's true for parents too. It's true for parents too. And, and I think that it's not helpful when we have unrealistic expectations of them. It's another way that we can worship rather than reverence them. Scotty put it this way, all parents are sinners. No parent can possibly meet the deepest needs and longings of our hearts. Many of us are consumed with anger, hurt, and a victim's mentality because we have never gotten over the fact that we were not loved well by our parents. This is not to excuse abuse, but it is to say your parents are not perfect. And to expect things from them that only God can give you is to worship them rather than honor them. To honor your parents is not to put them on a pedestal and demand that they be God for us. We like to have our cake and eat it too sometimes, right? We want our parents to pay for us, remove the consequences of our sin, rescue us whenever we get in trouble, but then we want them to stay out of our lives. <laughs> and you know, we treat God the same way. We do, right? A wise parent stewards carefully the power they have over their children. This is an important thing. Think about this. There are different ways to exasperate your children. Exasperation is basically where you can't ever do enough, and it just brings you to despair and frustration to where you feel hopeless. Um, a guy who uh, was one of the founders of RUF used to talk about this a lot, 
and I always thought this was helpful. He said, when children are born, the parents have absolute power over them. When you're born, your parents have absolute power over you in terms of physical power, economic power, intellectual power. But what has not really been developed at that point is a bond of love. It's true. Like the, the, the newborn does not have a bond of love with their parent. The parent needs to, if they're wise, steward the things they have power over their children. They need to steward that power well to nurture the bond of love. Because what often happens is that they don't steward that power well or they try to hold on to it longer than they should because the bond of love has not been nurtured. Right? Wise parents know that training a child up means training them up to see them leave. And while eventually the power they have over their children physically, economically, intellectually will end, right? Eventually, you get big enough that if your parent can't spank you anymore, you're going to hit them back. Eventually, they don't have all physical power over you. Eventually, you get the car keys and you go off and you do your own thing. And while they may be able to track you on your phone, they don't really have full power over you in that way anymore. Eventually, when you go to school, you realize there are other people that have ideas about things that maybe even disagree with your parents. They don't have complete intellectual power over you anymore. Eventually, you get your own job, you make your own money, and they don't have full financial power you, over you anymore, right? But sometimes, especially when you're in college, like that stuff is still like complicated because your parents may still be trying to have all of those powers over you rather than trusting and using those things to nurture and build up the bond of love because eventually they won't have those controls over you anymore. And if the bond of love hasn't been nurtured, things aren't going to go so well, right? All right, a couple practical applications because I know we're running out of time. Have patience with your parents. Have patience with your parents. 1 Peter 4, 8 says this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Don't manipulate your parents. You know, there's probably nothing more shame-inducing than parenting. I don't know any parent that feels like they've done it well and that they don't have a lot to apologize for. And sometimes the shame can end up making them vulnerable to manipulation. And some of you know that and might need to repent. It's so easy to make parents feel like complete incompetence. Bear with your parents. Most kids don't really appreciate their parents until they have kids of their own. And that's kind of sad. Have you ever thought about writing a letter telling your parents how grateful you are for the things they did well, even now? For some of you, that might be a really great thing to do, right? Envision their glory, but don't shut your eyes to their sin. Now, this is actually a principle that applies to every relationship. I think we mentioned it when we were talking about dating, right? When you're thinking about who might be someone that would be good to marry, I would say somebody that can envision your glory, but also doesn't shut their eyes to your sin. Not somebody that always is good at pointing out everything you did wrong, and not somebody that's like, you're perfect, don't ever change. 
You don't want either one of those. You want somebody that envisions your glory, but also sees your sin, and they're not blind to it. They don't run from it, okay? And for many of us, allowing our perfect parent, God, to redefine what parenting is supposed to be. So here's what's amazing. We are not doomed to parent as our parents did. The gospel can break the power of generational sin, but it doesn't do it automatically. We need to take our cues from parenting, not from the way our parents did it, or even not from the way they didn't do it, but from God's words. You you always say when, when we do premarital counseling, like there's the way your family did it, there's the way your family did it. Those are two sources of wisdom for us to be able to say, yep, that was good, or no, don't want to do it that way. But you can't let your parents control you either by saying, we'll never do it that way, or we will only do it that way. When you come together in this new family, you have to wrestle with what does God's word say? Tradition is helpful, so you don't have to think through every single question from scratch. But God and his word is the authority, right? And sometimes even the idea of what it means to be a parent needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed. I'm going to tell you a story as we close by Henry Light. We actually sang two Henry Light hymns tonight, um, which I don't, like Brandon and I were talking about, I didn't remember that this was a good way to close this sermon, but Jesus, I my cross have taken, abide with me, both written by a guy named Henry Light. Henry Light lived in the 1800s, and he actually had a pretty wretched father. Um, His father actually never married his mother. He was like a military guy. They shacked up together, had two kids, and then eventually the mother left, and Henry and his brother got sent to boarding school. And then the father, like, disappeared. But he would write letters to Henry and his brother, and he would sign them, not your father, but your uncle. And it it gets so weird that when Henry eventually gets married and goes on his honeymoon, he spends time with this guy he thinks is his uncle. And his father still doesn't tell him, I'm actually your father. When he gets back to England... Somebody there says, you know, that guy is actually your father. And then Henry is mortified because he's married a woman from a higher social class, and he feels he's brought scandal on her family, and his friends have to kind of talk him down from the ledge. They're like, you didn't know. This guy didn't tell you. But imagine that. Your own father won't let you call him father, but pretends to be your uncle. That's wretched. But you know what's fascinating? In every one of Henry's hymns, the idea of the fatherhood of God is a warm, comforting image. And it didn't have to be. Like, he could have kind of avoided that. Well, boy, I've got a lot of baggage around the father thing. I'm just going to write about other things. Like, it's awesome to see God in creation. I'll just stick to that. No, every hymn has this. One of the ones we didn't sing tonight, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, has this amazing stanza. Father-like He tends and spares us well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Right? And in Jesus on my cross, think what father's smiles are thine. Right? I I, I always think like this is like tangible proof that God in the gospel has power to deconstruct and reconstruct what it means to have a true father, because Henry experienced that. 
And the God he experienced is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Let's pray.